Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services in Conversation with podcast series on the UBS On Air Conversations podcast channel. Hello everyone, welcome to UBS On Air. My name is Judy Spalthoff and I have the pleasure of leading our Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services team here at UBS in the Americas. The mission of our group is to serve as a thought partner to exceptional families. We understand that our clients' needs extend beyond the purely financial, so we take a strategic and sustainable approach to managing their wealth for continuity. Many of the families we work with consist of entrepreneurs and business owners, and this is no surprise as family businesses are among the most widespread and successful business organizations worldwide. They often combine passion, a sense of identity, shared culture, and a long-term outlook as well as the nimbleness of making executive decisions. Today, I am proud to welcome and speak with Jim McCann, the founder of 1-800-Flowers. Jim truly has a knack for making things grow, corny pun intended. Uh, what began as a family-founded shop has now grown into a public corporation worth over $2 billion and is the number one seller of flowers in the world. Jim, thank you for joining me today. Great to be with you. Great. Let's get started. So, I, I, I barely gave a background on you, so I want to, before we dive into the company, I'd really like to spend a little bit of time talking about you and how you ended up here. I know you started as a social worker at St. John's Home for Boys in Queens, New York, before moving into the floral industry. Um, talk to me a little bit about your background and how those early experiences influenced your approach to your career. Well, it's, uh, it's you know, when you say early experiences, you know, I've been a, a florist at 1-800-Flowers now for over 40 years, so... It was a, wow. a fairly brief career before flowers. So, uh, yeah, this just, has been it, huh? <laughs> most of my adult life, this is what I do. Uh, yeah. The the only things clear. Well, taking it back, I, I grew up in in Queens, South Queens. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood, a blue collar neighborhood of. Uh, if you looked around, what our business role models, career option, and role models were, I thought that. Uh, you know, we had shopkeepers, we had small business people, a lot of like tradesmen, craftsmen. My dad was a painting contractor, so I'm the oldest of five children. If you grew up in a household like that, you realize you work. And uh, it, it was probably uh, uh, multiple reasons why my parents insisted that we as kids all work. Uh, one was to teach us a work ethic. The other is to keep us from being around the neighborhood where we had the potential to get into trouble. So. Uh, so working was something you just did from a very, very young age. And I wouldn't tell you that, oh, that the, uh, the being a good student was a part of it. Uh, uh, perhaps that should have been emphasized a little more. Uh, <laughs> but uh, as I looked around at the role models I had, you know, you had, uh, you know, had some role models who you didn't want to follow. They, they would tend to be uh, involved in uh, criminal activity, so they weren't good role models. But the people I, I think in the neighborhood that my family seemed to look up to, and certainly I seemed to look up to the most, were in the uh, civil services, the policemen, firemen, uh, those kinds of activities. And so I thought, surely, that the best path for me would become a policeman. And I was on my way to doing that when, um, when by accident, I, I stumbled into a career in the social services, my first and only other career, uh, besides uh, besides part-time jobs and and knock around kinds of jobs before you really got on a serious career path. And a friend of mine worked at a home for boys in, in uh, Queens called St. John's Home for Boys. 
And he encouraged me to give that career a try because I'd always be asking him about it. I thought it was fascinating. He ran a group home. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, he invited me to come have dinner with him and the guys one night because uh, uh, because I had expressed such interest in it. I did. And he asked me if I'd like to try out working there. And I said, sure, I'd give it a try. He said, okay, you start tonight. And that's how I started a, a career. It spanned 14 years. So I, I lived in and worked in uh, uh, group homes uh, for St. John's. And then uh, got a promotion to work in the administration uh, at the main campus, which was in Rockaway Beach, New York. And uh, it was a wonderful learning experience. For a young person, you can get an extraordinary amount of responsibility uh, at a very, very young age. In fact, I was not much older than the, the 10 boys I lived with in that group home. I think I was maybe six months to a year older than the oldest, uh, oldest young man in that house. Uh, but it was just a wonderful experience, and I had already started John Jay College of Criminal Justice, part of the city university system, Judy, because I was in pursuit of that police career. But then as I got hooked on the work I was doing, I just kept putting that off until finally uh, finally, I was fully engaged at St. John's. I was now one of the administrators at a home, and I, I loved it and learned so much and learned so much about myself about how quickly I became my own father in working with those young men. But it was a, it was a, a neat path to, uh, to developing professional skills and understanding the value of relationships and what motivates all of us, which is, you know, uh, frankly, what I learned working and living in that group home, the first of those uh, group homes that I lived in and worked in, uh, is, is what I do at work every day now, which is, try and uh, develop relationships with individuals, try and craft them into groups and teams, uh, try and set common goals that we all want to achieve and get to and uh, keep score along the way and make it fun, make it interesting and uh, make it outcome focused. And so that's what I learned to do in that group home. And that's what I try and do every day at work. Yeah. So a couple of points there. So the, the value of relationships is definitely true in the business I'm in too. Um, one of our vice chairman, Brian Hall, who I know you know, he sort of famously says, if it's, if it's not, you know, if it's not personal, it's not sustainable. Right. So truly thinking about I like that in every aspect. Yeah. Right. You can, you can use that one. He'll, he'll let you use that one I'll, too. So I'll borrow it. I think that's <laughs> for, for sure. And then also Jim, I'm not sure I realized you were the, were the oldest of five. Um, I'm the youngest of five, so we can have we'll have to have that as a separate conversation about those dynamics. I understand. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, my and my siblings would tell you the same that I was with Will. For sure. <laughs> I would just say it's timing, but anyway, a, a conversation for another time. <laughs> Uh, so shifting focus, right? So your company grew from, you know, the, as you were talking about shopkeepers and whatnot in your neighborhood. So you had one shop on First Avenue in Manhattan, and then that led to a chain of retailers, which then led to the purchase of 1-800-Flowers. And correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, so it kind of occurs to me that before you could order anything on Amazon through Alexa, you could order from 1-800-Flowers. Sort of walk us through that part of the evolution of your of your career. Uh, it's, a, it's a long uh, span, but I'll try and do it very quickly. Uh, as we look at it, uh, Judy, uh, we, as a business, we feel like we've been through five waves or going, uh, going through the fifth mm-hmm. wave now. And I described them as you did. You know, I started with a, one flower shop, but I, I decided to uh, buy that flower shop to build a business. So I, wasn't, I didn't just want to be a florist. I wanted to be a florist, yes, but I wanted to be a florist that built a florist business. 
So six months after I uh, bought the first shop, I opened the second shop and did that every six months or so for, uh, mm. uh, for about, uh, well, actually it got a little faster paced at the end for, for about 10 years. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my goodness, this first wave retail needs to be the first wave and not the only wave because it mm. wasn't, uh, there was no real economy of scale. In fact, probably some diseconomies of scale. And it was just no way I was going to grow a national company opening up a shop every couple of few months. And uh, so lo and behold, we had the opportunity to buy uh, the company that had in it the telephone number 1-800-Flowers, which is a company, frankly, that had failed. They had tried to uh, launch and they were around, I guess, for uh, uh, six months or so. We were fulfilling floors for that company in the New York area. All of a sudden, boom, everything stopped. You know, we had a few months of, uh, of orders coming in and then it stopped. So I got in touch with them and wound up buying that company, which had, frankly, nothing left in it in assets other than the telephone number uh, and a telephone number that didn't ring anymore. <laughs> so uh, my bet was that the only way we were going to be able to become a national company, which was my goal, was to uh, get that telephone number and change how people uh, thought about uh, sending gifts and particularly floral gifts and how they express themselves. And of course, as you would imagine, Judy, everyone I asked said, bad idea. People don't want to dial an 800 number 24 hours a day. That's silly. And they certainly won't be comfortable giving their credit card number out over the telephone. And who the heck needs flowers at three o'clock in the morning anyway? <laughs> and so this is, this is not going to work. People want to go into their local florist. And they want to have an account with their local father. So everyone who knew, knew that it wouldn't work. Uh, so we went ahead anyway. Uh, and, uh, and lo and behold, in a few short years of, uh, of uh, having that number, we changed it into a business. And we became a national brand. We caught lightning in a bottle, Judy. And that's not easy to do. And you know, a friend of mine who's one of the smartest people I know, uh, business operators, said that it takes seven years and no less than $100 million to create a brand, and only one in 20 of those ever succeed. And here we were without the $100 million, uh, and certainly in less than seven years, we're one of those one in 20, one in however many, uh, that were fortunate enough to catch the wave of 800 numbers being the, the new and trendy way to do business, and we became a brand. Now, in the meantime, I wasn't smart enough to know about financing and how to finance your business, so we did it bootstrapping out of pocket, and I started selling off the flower shops I had to our franchisees because I needed the capital to keep feeding this this idea we had to create this create this national brand. So we got lucky. Lightning in a bottle is indeed what we caught. And fast forward four, five, six years later, all of a sudden we were a national brand, and that uh, and that doesn't happen often. It's not a good way to build a business plan by counting on. Uh, 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 counting on uh, winning a lottery ticket. But in fact, right. once in a while it does happen and, and it did for us. So that was the second wave. Second wave was the 800 number. Then uh, my younger brother, Chris, uh, youngest of five, so the guy who had it easy like you, Judy, uh, <laughs> was waited on oh, yeah. by his four older sibling. <laughs> uh, yeah, he yeah. came out of uh, college. Uh, he came to work with me and uh, he, uh, being a young guy and just out of university, interested in the new evolving technology. So we were always experimenting with what's next, what, what's a new, hey, if we, could, if we could create a national brand with no money and no real knowledge, 
what's the next emerging technology that could supplant us? And so we were, you know, Andy Grove, who was the founder of Intel, uh, uh, wrote a book called Only the Paranoid Survive. And I think he had us in mind because we were certainly paranoid about what's going to come along next. And in experimenting with all those new technologies, Chris kept coming back to, I think this, this online world now that we refer to as the internet is something that's got some staying power here. So that was a third way for us. We embraced the internet very early on. We had a website before it mattered. And anything that you tried to do on your own website before 1995, when uh, uh, when Netscape came along, Mark Andreessen uh, founded the browser, Netscape, uh, and changed the world. It organized this internet. All of a sudden, that website we had really started to matter. And then fast forward a few years later, uh, we went from having no national competitors to having 21 financed competitors. When I say finance, they all had private equity backing, and they were looking, coming gunning for us. And so we were encouraged to uh, go public so that we'd have the firepower instead of trying to do it just out of our own pockets, that we'd have the firepower to, to, to sustain and, and, uh, and uh, win the fight. And so we went public in August of 1999. And thank God we did. And thank God we raised all the money we needed in one shot, which we did. And, uh, so that was the third wave. And then, and then of course, uh, uh, the internet began to mature. And then, uh, this thing called the recession came along. I don't know if you've read about it, but mm. it happened in 08, <laughs> and we decided to participate in that. <laughs> and for the first time ever, our business went backwards uh, two years in a row, just a little bit, a couple of points. But it was the first time we'd seen anything like that. We, we stayed profitable throughout, uh, but it was a, a wake-up call. And we had a probably, oh, 15, 18-18 uh, development projects in the works. And uh, we cut most of them, but a few things we didn't cut. We didn't cut our technology platform spend. We didn't cut our investments in mobile. And we didn't cut our investments in social. A lot of others we did, and that was prescient because that was a fourth wave. Everything mobile and social, and they go hand in hand. And that's, you know, not too long, though it's only 12, 13 years ago. But boy, have things changed since then. And I would tell you, Judy, the wave we're going through now, my brother Chris coined the term, I'd say, five or six years ago, about conversational commerce. How do we, uh, how do we interact with customers? And the irony is, uh, back when we had that first flower shop on First Avenue and 62nd Street in Manhattan, we had a relationship with uh, probably 40 years ago, 40 customers that really made our business go. But when I say a relationship, we, re- we genuinely had a relationship. Uh, we would, uh, they would stop by just to say hello. They'd come in and make themselves a cup of coffee. They'd, uh, uh, they'd uh, ask the restaurant recommendations. They'd ask for suggestions on where people could stay from who were coming to visit them from out of town. We had a genuine relationship. Oh, yes, and sometimes they'd buy a, a, a bouquet from us or send a gift from, to us, but it was a relationship. And Chris would talk about conversational commerce as the way we would try and mimic the relationships we had 40 years ago with 40 customers who made our business go. And now that we have 40 million customers using technology to mimic those same kind of relationships. So the fifth wave now, we've changed it from conversational commerce uh, to engagement commerce so that we're not just thinking about commerce. We're thinking about genuinely having a relationship and an engagement with customers. And now we're doing things different. And that is, 
We're not just tracking what people buy from us. We're tracking, we're tracking any way that they interact with us, whether they commu- uh, uh, view one of our uh, forums on a deep dive on a subject, when they uh, come to our connection communities to uh, help, when, help an, a peer of theirs who's going through a, a tough circumstance. Maybe they've been there and done that, and they can be a help. Or maybe they uh, are looking for ideas in terms of how they can uh, uh, express themselves without a gift to somebody and uh, any way that they would choose to engage with us. So that's why we think about it as engagement conference. So that's the fifth wave. And I frankly think the most exciting and most interesting and most business transformative for us. Yeah, certainly, especially now. So that's, that's incredible, all these ways that you've, you've written and, and the one you're currently writing. Um, and by the way, some of the, advice- the, the original, Sorry. none of the old ones ever go away. <laughs> they, no, no, no. They build on top of each other, right? It's like now, like, no, they, no. yeah. Um, and I'm thinking about back to the advice you didn't take, right? All those the naysayers that said everyone would want to walk into a store. And, you know, you guys kept going, right? You disrupted the industry, if you will. Um, we, we, if it isn't industry, think- yes, we did disrupt it. Yes, I think you did, um, and and got ahead of it, right? I mean, this, this internet thing, right? I hear it's pretty popular, and you guys got into it. Might catch all that. I'm not sure though. <laughs> we'll see. I, th- I think I think it'll be good. No, but I, it's it's interesting. We have um, every year I host a, a young successors program for our clients, and one of our sort of standing um, speakers is uh, my old professor at NYU Stern this guy named Luke, Luke Williams who teaches an entrepreneurship class and he has a book called disrupt. Um, it's really interesting sort of the thinking about like, it doesn't have to be a new industry. It could be a current one and how are you just being disruptive? And, you know, the obvious ones of, of, of late being like Uber and, and, and companies like that. But, you know, I think that you guys are one of the, the original disruptors. So <laughs> well done. And I, I, I um, think that's probably yeah. the case. And, and because of that, we're always looking for, what's the potential disruption coming our way and we're early to it. And we've made Judy, we've made that a part of our culture. So we encourage people to be early to things to what's the next technology. We're deliberate about holding forums where we get particularly young people new to our company to think about what's new, what's next. That's where the ideas are going to come from. The first time I heard about this thing, Facebook was at one of those dinners we hold, which is called, uh, you know, what have you learned lately? And uh, this young lady who was then a student at Hofstra University on Long Island, nearby our main office, and uh, she she's still in university, so maybe she was 20 years old, and she said, well, she's spending more and more time on Facebook, so I said, you know, I'm going to come visit you tomorrow. That's back when you still needed an EDU address for Facebook. And so I said, I'm going to come visit you. I'd like you to show me what, what do you do on Facebook. And so that's why we're early to it because we know the ideas aren't going to come from the, uh, you know, the old 40 year old down the hall. They're going to come from someone who's <laughs> a, a teenager or 20, uh, uh, who's, uh, who's, how are their behaviors changing? Because then we'll see how it will ripple through, uh, the, uh, neck, the older generations. Yeah, for sure. So that, that's a, that's an incredible corporate culture you've built, right? Of being embracing that. Um, what could come next and that potential, how do we even disrupt ourselves kind of a thing. So, so it occurs to me that leadership and corporate culture have definitely played a large role in the success of your company. So how is that? And, you know, and we, we talk all the time internally. I said that Chris was promoting all the new technologies when he joined the company. And we tracked, I think it was 51 different experiments that we ran 
things like uh, uh, catalogs on a CD-ROM and things like that. And the only one that we kept coming back to was this online world. And we, we were the first uh, vendor on, uh, first uh, partner on AOL that you could transact with, you know, way back when. Uh, so mm-hmm. we, it's early, it's important to be first and it's okay to fail, which is why we pointed out we had 51 failures before the internet really showed its head as being the way to go. And, uh, and then we're like when Alexa first came out, we were the first thing you could do as a transaction on Alexa. And, uh, and, uh, that, uh, you know, that's, we celebrate that in our, uh, in our, uh, in our company and through our town halls and everything and the people who led that effort. And when, uh, when, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was on stage introducing his voice bots on Facebook, uh, what did he do? He called 1-800-Flowers and ordered flowers on stage, you know. That doesn't happen by accident. Right. We're in there now. Yeah. Does that matter so much now? But it sure matters in terms of attracting young tech talent, curious people who want to be someplace where they can take a chance. Uh, they can be earlier things. And, uh, and that helps us in terms of recruiting, retention, and just creating a culture of people who aren't afraid to take a chance. Well, yeah, because it's, you're celebrating the risk, you know, and you're celebrating like, it's okay if we fail, we got to try, right? You're, you know, we're not all going to be failing, but I think as a leader and a company talking about that is so, it's so vital because then people aren't, you know, watching their back and thinking their job's at risk because they throw out an idea that's, you know, not perfect in the end. So I I give you a lot of, I mentioned to you that we run these, uh, dinners and I, a sprinkle. This is back when. Remember when we used to be able to have dinners in person? Oh, must be. <laughs> yeah, remember that. But we used to run these dinners. You know, every I try and do it every month, but maybe it was every other month when you really got down to it. But we'd invite you know mostly new employees. Uh, we mm. sprinkle around a few veterans around the table, but we get a table for fourteen, fifteen, sixteen people in a nearby restaurant, a private room, and. Uh, just and we'd have a topic that they'd have to come prepared to speak to, but then we'd ask them to bring any idea, any creative thought that they see coming that they think will be a trend that could impact us, either in terms of technology or social media or the uh, things that people are interested in. So it's a great conversation, and great merchandising ideas have come from those dinners, and it doesn't have to be from the merchant department. So I remember one idea: a young lady worked in our HR department. And she came in and she said, you know, we're in the business of helping people express themselves and connect. Uh, And she had this idea for a message in a bottle. And so the next morning she came into my office after that dinner and she was very early. And I said to her, what's up? She said, I I stayed up all night after I mentioned that at dinner last night and I made this prototype. And lo and behold, uh, I walked it down to merchandising. I showed what it was and and now we have a message in a bottle. It's been in our line for, you know, mm. that's probably 10 years ago. Uh, but it's, you, you got to tell people that they're not confined to their department, that they can think across lines and, and get rewarded for it. Yeah. And then the, you seem like such an approachable leader, right? You know, to give, kind of have that. Oh, I'm a miserable. Okay, I'm going to invite. Don't be confused. <laughs> Yeah, but I know as you know, as someone who works for a big company too, right? It, it it does make you feel like you're a part of something when you feel like you can talk to the leader and talk to the CEO or the chairman or whatever. So I think that that's that's a really big deal. So I, I commend you on that as well. 
Um, so you've mentioned Chris a couple times, um, and I know when Enter Flowers is public, you mentioned that too, but it, it still feels, you know, from the outside and from, from what I know, you know, we've met a few times and done some stuff together, it does still feel like, you know, it's a family-founded business, and I know some of your family still works there. So talk about, tell me what it's like working with, with your family and how your values shape um, the company that we see today to sort of feel like that family business. Well, you know, if you, the unique thing about the flower uh, shop business, if you look around the country, it's almost always a family. And the reason for that is it's a very tough business. And uh, there's a craft involved and there's an artistic element to it. So it takes a handful of, of skills to be successful in the business. Oh, and by the way, when I say it's hard, I'm not kidding. Everyone walks into a flower shop and says, oh, it must be so nice to work with flowers all the time. <laughs> And the people there who've been standing for 12 hours, whose hands are yeah. throbbing from being uh, cut by thorns all day, are looking at you like, oh, yeah, this is just uh, living the dream here. <laughs> but uh, and, and then it's a, a crazy business because we have these peaks of holidays, whether it's Passover, Easter, Father's Day, Mother's Day, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, Valentine's Day, all these peaks. So you have to go from mm-hmm. normal business to 20x for the bigger of those holidays. And that's nearly impossible to do in a, in a, in a corporate form. Uh, that's why our flower shops are still primarily owned and run by uh, families because who else are you going to get to work that hard? And who else are you going to say, take your personal days from IBM and come work with me and deliver flowers uh, if you want to be invited for Thanksgiving dinner? So it's a, it's a, it's a tough business that way. And, and, and it was the same thing for us. You know, we were operating flower shops and my, I mentioned my dad was a, painting contractor my mom worked for us while she was alive she ran payroll and who else do you want to run payroll but your mom and uh all this the five as i mentioned so all my siblings have worked in the business at one time or another and now that we're older their kids have worked in the business uh so it's it's got a family influence to it even though it's a public company we have all that governance and transparency as is appropriate uh but it does have a family influence or feel to it now, one of the things that, and you and I have spoken about this, Judy, because I was tapping into your uh, experience bag to uh, think, find out about how other families that you work with handle things. And we developed a rule in our family. There's a, a couple of other uh, large family businesses that I have developed close relationships with. So tapping into their thinking about how they handle next generation at all. And what we did was uh, copy some of that, those good ideas. So, for example, if you work for us, if you, you, can, you have to work while you're in school. You can work for us, but you don't have to. And then afterwards, uh, when you graduate, you cannot work for us. You have to go work for somebody else. And you have to accomplish something somewhere else before you can even apply to come back to us. So maybe it's an advanced degree or maybe a couple of promotions. But I want you to go be completely ineffective to somebody else on somebody else's payroll <laughs> before you can uh, apply to come back to us. That tells everybody around the shop that there's, there's, you have to earn your way here and uh, that it's while we're family influenced, we're not family, uh, uh, we're not family to the exclusion of anybody else. And so we had not had many, but uh, my daughter had come back to work. We, we actually recruited her back. She was running a, uh, uh, the web business for a, a large famous department store and uh, talent was hard to find who actually knew how to do this stuff. So uh, we recruited her back and 
she's now uh, full-time uh, with three kids at home, uh, not working with us. I have a son. My brother Chris has a daughter that are in the business, uh, but they're relatively new to the business and, and were out of the business for a long time before uh, before they applied to come uh, come back or we recruited them for a specific assignment. So that's how we handle the next generation. And we do a, we try and do a pretty deliberate job of making sure that uh, they don't have a, an easier path to it. If anything, we probably make it more challenging for them to demonstrate the fairness, which is, I think, important in a, in a, in a shop that people don't think, well, uh, it's one for all and all for one unless a family member wants that spot. Right. Right. Yeah. Zero. Well, how do you, how do you see it. other family businesses handling those kinds of issues? Yeah, I think that's essentially the the advice we give and and what we see being the most successful. Um, the, the the number one that we really tout is sort of go get go make it on your own. Um, experience life outside our family business, and if you're still interested, right? Because we don't want anybody. Yeah. The other thing is that people feeling obligated, right? But if you're still interested, please come back, right? Let's talk about it. Some people said, yeah, I'll time frame. No expectation for you to come back. If you do, it has yeah. to be for good reasons, but we wouldn't expect you to come back because, you know, we're a public company. You don't have any, yeah. any right to successorship here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. With that, yeah, the younger that's... brother succeeded me. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. Right. Exactly. So he's CEO, right? Yes, he is. Yeah. Um, amazing. Well, I mean, I know that it's not just about the company too. And I've, I've, uh, I know you've received numerous honors for your philanthropic work as well. And, and I think the last time we saw each other in person was at the Smile Farm golf outing uh, last mm-hmm. year. So I know that's the charity of choice for 1-800-Flowers. Um, talk to me well, a little bit about the mission. That's sort of a, that, that, I, I'm happy to, uh, Judy. That's sort of, a, a, sort of a, a, an ingredient to this whole thing. Uh, yeah. Again, a, a bit selfish in this, in this respect. Uh, our middle brother, so Chris is the youngest, I'm the oldest. We have two sisters, and sandwiched in between is a brother, Kevin. And, and Kevin was born with developmental disabilities, so he was never going to be independent. And when my parent, while my parents were alive, they made it important to us that we, uh, as a family, take care of Kevin and uh, stay very much involved in his life. And he was very much the centerpiece of our family. You know, whether it was as kids when we had to protect him in the neighborhood and he'd oftentimes get into some uh, precarious situations. Uh, so it's just been a part of our genetic uh, coding uh, that w- we need to uh, shelter and take care of Kevin. And uh, we're very fortunate that Kevin lives in a group home not far from any of us here on Long Island. And, uh, and the... Uh, the fellow who founded this agency that runs these group homes is a wonderful guy that my brother Chris and I, well, the whole family has been very close to, but Walter Stockton is his name. And he's a, a saintly kind of fellow and does the good work every day. Well, he started with one group home just just about 40, a little over 40 years ago, too, at the same time we were getting started. And fast forward, uh, he takes care of about seven or 8,000 people every day. Well, Walter uh, called us uh, uh, half a dozen years ago and said, you know, Jim, uh, your brother Kevin, I'd love to see him work in the community. And I have so many people in our group homes and in our agency who could and should be working in the community. 
but I cannot find them jobs. He said, so, uh, but I do have an idea. I said, okay, Walter, what's the idea? He said, you know, with your day job uh, and flowers and plants at all, he said, there's a piece of property for sale near us that I'd like to buy, build greenhouses on it, and create work uh, for people like your brother Kevin, who can and should be working, and, and this would be wonderful work for them to do. He said, I need two things. And I said, okay, what's that? He goes, I need you to write a big check, and I need you to help us on the on the uh, the growing side of us to figure out what to grow and to make sure we sell it so that it can offset some of our expenses. Well, I have this wonderful group of florists who we work with every day around the country who are wonderful, generous, thoughtful, creative, and solid members of each of their communities. So when I brought it to them to discuss with them, they said, guaranteed, we'll buy everything they grow. So uh, we created Smile Farms, and we have uh, in our first facility a, a, a few dozen uh, uh, farmers there who work every day growing flowers and plants and now increasingly, Judy, foodstuff uh, because you know, another group of caring, wonderful, family-oriented businesses are restaurants in our communities and they're so good to us in that they'll tell us exactly what we need to grow that they'd like to buy uh, that some herbs and some microgreens and some uh, uh, peppers and tomatoes and things that they would like to be able to buy from us that they'd make part of their local fare on their menu. So we've expanded into food products as well. So it's worked out well. Uh, we now have a half a dozen campuses, uh, a few hundred people that work on these farms. And so we give meaningful work experiences to people who otherwise really had precious little to do. And what strikes me about that is the impact that has not only on those individuals, but on their families. And uh, it heartens me every day. I know the impact it's had on our family. You know, when we gather, we can't help it. You know, we've all we either been in or we are still in the flower business. So when we gather at a, a holiday, oftentimes we slip into talking shop. And my brother Kevin doesn't have a part of that. And now he is. Now he's ahead of us on the growing cycle. So when he's talking, uh, uh, when, when he's uh, in, in Valentine's Day, he's already talking about the spring crop and we're not there yet. But he's he's... He's part of the same broader industry that we're in, and it means the world to him. And as you know, Judy, and as you know well, uh, work is a lot more than just a paycheck. It's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a reason to, uh, to, to come and interact and socialize and have community involvement. And so we've, we're, we're thrilled that Smile Farms is doing well. We have some terrific uh, young ladies who run the, the, the operation. Uh, we work with some of the great agencies that are just doing the good work every day, and we work with them to provide their their uh, clients, their residents, uh, meaningful work opportunities. And uh, But there's a selfish motivation, frankly, beyond the obvious in terms of Kevin. And I remember Mary Lou, my wife Mary Lou and I, for years, went up to Hyannisport, Massachusetts, uh, for this weekend activities around the Robert F. Kennedy uh, Memorial Foundation. And I remember watching Ethel Kennedy, this wonderful, wonderful woman, mother of a whole big brood of kids. And uh, I watched her with that foundation. And yes, they had obvious good work they were doing and still do in the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial. But uh, they had a golf tournament and they had a big dinner and they had all kinds of activities over the weekend as a fundraiser. But I watched how she used that charity, Judy, as a way to keep her family together. Everybody had a responsibility. 
You were in charge of the entertainment. You were in charge of organizing the golf outing. You were in charge of bringing new relationships to the family. You were in charge of working with the board to decide how they allocated their resources around so many of their important activities. You had to meet with this one and that one to get this to happen. And I just was always watching that at a corner of my eye, how she used it as a galvanizing force to transmit the family values to every one of those kids to encourage them to have interaction beyond the obvious, you know, just out of curiosity and social interaction, and to pass on to the next generation the sense of responsibility that she and her husband had and, and their parents before them. And, and frankly, that inspired me with smile bonds because now nothing makes me feel better than to see our kids, that is mine and my sister's and my brother Chris's kids, getting involved in smile bonds. I have a niece who runs our summer a fundraiser every year out the city field to a Met game. When I say a fundraiser, it's not really don't make money on it, but it's a friend raiser, so to speak. And we get, you know, 500,000 people to gather in a night to have a, a wonderful night with all the grandkids there and the nieces and nephews. Yeah. And then my uh, son involved in our golf tournament. He's the MC for that every year. And he gets to work with a, a friend of mine who's a professional, uh, 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 speaking coach, presentation coach. And I see my son work with this guy who's such a talent, former voice of the New York Mets, by the way. So there are other okay. benefits and motivations we have. But when you can do good, do well by doing good, uh, I think you're checking all the boxes. Yeah, well, there's a lot that you said there, but I think, you know, you've created another family business. Um, and I think... It just has a different tax status. You're right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Ethel Kennedy's a big shoes to fill and to <laughs> a nice um, sort of mentor, if you will, in this uh, to, to watch and to follow. But yeah, I think I'm, that she's uh, she's just a giant. Uh, yeah, unbelievable. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm incredibly impressed with Smile Farms, and I think what you guys have done is is really quite remarkable. Um, getting back to what you said, you know, it's not just about work or a paycheck and I, I would sort of summarize that to say it's about purpose right you know we've you've given so many people purpose and um i think that that well, let me tell you really, a, a, really quick, remarkable. a quick story that drove the point home yeah. in the early days of smile farms we do another dinner in uh, may it's thursday in may after mother's day uh for this agency that walter started that i told you about and uh it's a thursday evening dinner at this wonderful uh, facility, uh, beautiful, and in springtime, it's just beautiful facility. It's called Flower Fields. And uh, I was at the cocktail hour uh, several years ago, and there's a couple came up to me and said, just a couple younger than me, and they came up and said, we just want to thank you and your family for all the work you do with Smile Farms. And I said, well, for me, it's not that much work anymore. It's uh, getting it going might have been, but it's sort of got a, its own leadership now. And it really has some great momentum. So I, I can't take any credit for working very hard on it now. And they said, well, I just want to tell you, you know, our story. And their daughter, we'll, we'll, we'll call her Emily. Their daughter was uh, had aged out of uh, school programs. And that's a big issue for people with uh, uh, disabilities. When school programs end, very often, they have nothing to do. They can't find work. Uh, there's no, their social interaction diminishes. And uh, if they're fortunate enough to have a family that's capable and can take care of them, that's fine, but they still suffer 
from boredom and loneliness and lack of purpose. And they told me the story of Emily. She had aged out of programs. She was home. And the father said to me, you know, I have to confess to you that uh, dinners are miserable or were miserable around our house. Uh, Emily has an older brother and an older sister, and they have their own families now, and they live in nearby communities. But Emily became so difficult because of her depression about having nothing to do and being bored. She'd sit and watch TV all day. Both parents worked, so there was always a challenge who was going to be home to take care of Emily. Her brother and sister had started to disengage with her because it was miserable to be around her, and they had their own families, and they just naturally started to drift away. And the dad confessed to me that he oftentimes worked late at night, so he purposely missed dinner because it became so unpleasant at home. And they uh, approached Walter Stockton and met him at some event and asked if, they, if he knew of any kinds of programs or work activities that possibly Emily could get involved in. And he had someone from Smile Farm speak with her, and we decided that, yes, she was a candidate, and we put her to work. And they said, we just have to tell you how our life has changed. Heretofore, Emily had gained like 35, 40 pounds. She was in poor health, and she was just miserable to be around. And, uh, and she was just in a constant state of depression. She gets a job, fast forward. Her health has improved. Her weight has improved. The father said to me, she's still complaining every night at dinner, but now it's about how hard she has to work. <laughs> and, and Her I, aching back. They, yeah, no. but, but it's social, too. So they said, you know, this yeah. weekend is a big weekend. I said, what do you mean? Well, they have the, the Smile Farms uh, uh, party on Saturday uh, evening. And Emily's all excited because she and her mom were out shopping for a new outfit for her for the party. And she's so excited. She's hoping that this young man asked her to dance at the party. And he said, so now she has a reason to get up in the morning. And she's socially involved again. And she has friends. And they, you know, she wants a, a mobile phone now that so she can text with friends. Whether or not she can is a secondary question. But it just makes the point, Judy, with your education, all the things that you've done, all the training programs, the MBA that you have from NYU Stern, uh, the Carnegie Mellon training you've had, still, you don't go to work just because, you know, you, you need a paycheck. You have choices on where you can go. You, you can do so many different things with your career. So it's all about how you assess the relationships, the personal growth, the mm -hmm. social interactivity. And that's what's been so tough about this past year. But it's been especially yeah. tough for people with disabilities. Yeah. Uh, this past year has been very, very tough. Without work, without being able to get out of their homes, without being able to socially interact, go to their programs, their doctors. Do you think it's been tough on us who, who don't have those challenges? Think how tough it is on people who do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's, it's, you, count, you have to count your blessings in so many ways. Everyone does, but uh, on that aspect, we are... What if we didn't have this video technology? How much tougher would this year have been? Oh my gosh, I know. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And uh, but I do feel like you know the light is there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and we're sort of coming around. And um, I think you're right. I don't think it's that far off anymore. I think in the next few yeah. months, uh, I, I think I think we're going to come out of this. Look, we're never gonna, we're never going to put the toothpaste back in the in the uh, tube. I, I, no. you, uh, do you think you'll be going to the office five days a week anymore when this is over? I don't think so. You? No, I don't think I don't think we will. I think we live in a hybrid world now. Yeah, I think so too. But the social interactions are so super key, and you know, I would have want, wanted nothing more, you know, to your point, um, than to actually even been doing this in person. Um, but here we are over the phone. So, 
Um, oh, you want to watch? There's some places you want to be in person. This is not going to be one of them. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you know, yeah, it, it, I do always enjoy my time with you, Jim, just like I enjoyed, you know, t- chatting with you today. And just for, I, I know that we could talk for another, you know, hour or so, but for just for you know, time purposes, I'm going to. But you're running out um, of tape. <laughs> I'm running out of tape. Yeah. As I used to say, that's actually no longer true. We have plenty of tape, but I want to. Um, we'll, we'll end it there anyway. So I can't thank you enough for joining me. Um, such a great conversation, and I just really am, am inspired by both of your, both your your business success and and your your dedication to philanthropy and, and to your family. Um, and I know our listeners. Well, well, I want to I want to pay back the thanks here to you, Judy, and uh, to Sharon Sager and the team, uh, Chris Amo. Uh, you guys uh, walk the walk. What I mean by that is. Uh, you work with families and business folks that are part of your uh, uh, consumer customer universe, and you talk about relationships, but you live it in reality. I mean, you go out of your way to uh, make sure you're helpful to us in so many ways at Smile Bombs, uh, bend over backwards to really genuinely form relationships. And I love the quote that you said Brian uses all the time, if it's not personal, it's not sustainable. And and you guys live that. And uh, so we're thrilled to be partnered with you. I'm thrilled to have gotten to know you uh, in, even during this past year more with a couple of things that we've had occasion to be connected on. And so uh, my my thanks and uh, appreciation to you for uh, uh, being genuine and, uh, a, and a real partner. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Jim. Same, same to you. And um, hi to your whole family. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Judy. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.